My first car was an old Rambler station wagon. Well, it wasn't actually mine. It was my mom's, but I drove it most of the time. And I plastered it with Christian bumper stickers, which is probably why my mom didn't drive it very much, because it was pretty obnoxious. But hey, it was the 70s, you know? I remember one bumper sticker that said God Squad, which is a ripoff of a famous TV show in the 70s called The Mod Squad. Then there was the One Way Jesus bumper sticker that had a hand with one finger sticking up, which was half of the peace sign, which was two fingers, but the peace sign represented drugs and free sex, so Christians just used one finger. But my favorite bumper sticker read, Read your Bible. It will scare the hell out of you. I think it was my favorite because Christians weren't supposed to use that kind of language back then, and so I thought it was a bit edgy. It's not unusual these days to read social media posts asking why pastors don't talk about hell anymore. And I guess the answer is pretty easy because nobody wants to hear about hell. But for those of you who don't think pastors speak of hell enough, you are in luck today because that is exactly what I am going to do. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Before I get into all of this, let me make a few foundational comments to get going. First of all, like always, I am not trying to tell you what you must believe or think on this subject. Throughout history, Christians have had many and varied positions on the doctrine of hell. You have to come to your own conclusions. Secondly, we've probably all heard people say over and over that the Bible is very clear on the subject of hell, but that is just not true at all. The Bible is anything but clear. In fact, it is all over the place. It contradicts itself, and it's super confusing, actually. If anybody tells you the Bible is clear on the idea of hell, they certainly have not studied it. Thirdly, we all have filters. And every time we read the word hell or something similar in the Bible, we apply our filters and make the passage fit that filter. In fact, when it comes to hell, you can talk to pretty much anybody that has grown up in the Western world and ask them the Christian view of hell, and they will something, say something about fire and torture and eternity. Even if they don't believe it, they know what it is. And certainly those of us that grew up in the modern evangelical church see the word hell in the Bible or fiery furnace or weeping and gnashing of teeth or anything like that. And our filter tells us it's speaking about our traditional view of hell, that place of eternal conscious torment where people that have not accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior go after they die. After all of this, you may still hold that view, but all I'm asking is that you be aware of your own filters and that you keep your mind open. And then finally, I am not trying to create controversy or division. I'm just trying to lay out options for what the Bible might 
be talking about. But for some reason, this is a very controversial subject. It's like the holy cow of evangelical belief. I remember the first time I heard anybody challenge my traditional view of hell. He was a bishop in the Methodist Church in South Africa and a real mentor for me and some of my friends during their early and mid-90s. When he questioned the traditional view of hell, I was shocked. I was tempted to like write him off. You can't do that. Then a century later, I read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, right after it came out. I remember when I read it thinking, could this be right? It went against everything that I thought was biblical, but then there was something in it that he was saying that just rang true for me. As I read on, my feelings changed to, I hope Rob is right about this. It was just one chapter, but it was an amazing book. Nobody talked about the other chapters, only that one. And most of you know the end of the story. Rob was pretty much excommunicated from evangelicalism, if you can actually do that. Most Christian bookstores quit selling his previous books. He went from hero to zero in one book. And to this day, many Christians still write off everything Rob Bell says just because of that one chapter. I have a friend in the States who goes to um, Rob Bell events every chance he gets, and he regularly meets pastors who tell them that if their church knew they were there, they would be fired. I, I don't know why this is such a holy cow in evangelicalism, although I do have a theory that I won't go into now, but I hope that, that even if you disagree, in the end you don't completely write me off because of my views. The truth is I've never been that comfortable with the idea of hell, at least how it was conveyed to me. And I'm sure that's true for many Christians and even secretly many pastors. It just never seemed to ring true. If this God we serve is so loving and so kind and so good, how could he sentence someone to an eternal torture chamber because they don't believe the right things? or because they didn't pray the prayer when they had the chance, or worse yet, that they never even had the chance to pray the prayer. Over the last few years, I've tried to come to terms with my discomfort. I just couldn't buy into the traditional view of hell, but at the same time, I needed to figure out what I actually do believe. What do I do with all those passages where Jesus speaks of hell or pending judgment? I've said this before, but at some point after we deconstruct our faith, we need to reconstruct. Richard Rohr talks about order, disorder, and reorder, which is probably much better language than deconstruct or reconstruct. But I've been reordering my doctrine around the subject of hell. I want to briefly unpack what I would consider to be the four main Christian views on hell. What, you say? I thought there was only one biblical view of hell. 
Well, if you thought that, you would be wrong. These four views are not held in some cult following somewhere, but they are held by many, many Bible-believing theologians all over the world. Let me do the two extremes first. Most of you know the traditional view of hell, although I don't like that language at all, because traditional implies that if you don't hold that view, you're some kind of an outlier, and that's not right. So I'm going to call this the infernalist view of hell. In this view, hell is a real place where anyone who does not believe in or accept Jesus will go the moment of their death. And in hell, they will be punished for all eternities. Their bodies will be burned, but not consumed. Excruciating pain and torment. There is no redemption. There is no end. On on the other end of the spectrum is Christian universalism. It's the view that everyone will be saved. Some would even go as far as to saying that hell doesn't actually exist. They say that the images of hell in the New Testament are just metaphors of what judgment would look like without God's grace. Everybody's in heaven. Nobody's in hell. I would say that many modern Christians only know these two views because we're such a dualistic thinking kind of people. In fact, for the infernalist, everyone that doesn't believe like them is a universalist. It's just that's what it is. But that isn't actually true. There's another view called annihilationism. Sometimes it's called conditionalism, but they believe something very different. They believe that hell is a real place and that people that reject Jesus actually go there, but it's not for eternity. There is an end. At some point, they perish. They just cease to exist. Some annihilationists say there's a time limit. Others would say it's conditional on the evil that you have um, put out there into the world. But in the end, you just simply perish. Annihilationists would say that eternal life is not guaranteed for everyone, but for those that believe in God. So John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then the last one that I'll talk about are the ultimate reconciliationists. These are people that believe that hell is real and that people go there, but the fire is actually a purifying fire that's not meant as punishment, but rather it's meant for redemption. And death is not the final word. Malachi, for example, speaks of this refining fire. In fact, some ultimate reconciliationists believe that everyone goes through the fires of purification, this refining fire, in order to be in the presence of Jesus. So in my view, those are the four major views Uh, biblical Christian views of hell. The traditional infernalist, annihilationism, ultimate reconciliationist, and universalist. 
Try saying that four times really fast. I don't think so. Of course, there are all kinds of mixtures of the above, and there are nuances upon nuances upon nuances. Let me start by saying, at this point in my journey, I do believe that hell exists. I suppose some of you are relieved to hear that, and others might be ready to turn off the podcast right now, but just hang in there with me. I believe that hell exists. I'm just not sure if anybody is there. Okay, so let's get into this. And the format I'm going to use here is to talk about why, after lots of prayerful study and over a long period of time, I have come to reject the traditional evangelical infernalist view of hell. And in doing that, I'll, I'll make some arguments for the other views of hell. Um, this will not be anything close to exhaustive, um, but really just an introduction to this subject. One of the points that the infernalists make is that the Bible talks so much about hell. So let's start there. The early Old Testament writers were not actually interested in the afterlife that much. For the most part, they don't really answer the question of where do you go when you die. There is a Hebrew word that shows up now and again in the Old Testament that's Sheol. It's the place of the dead. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's just dead. King David talks of Sheol as the pit or the realm of the dead or the place of darkness or the place of silence. The idea of hell being a place of eternal conscious torment is not in the Old Testament at all. But you start to see talk of the afterlife showing up much later in the story. So, for example, in Daniel 12, verse 2, you read this. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Certainly by the time of Jesus, this idea of a good place and a bad place began to take hold in Judaism. In the Old Testament, there's also a number of references to the Valley of Himnon that are important to talk about. It was a valley just outside of the city of Jerusalem. The valley is super important when we come to the New Testament, so, so let's look at a bit of its history. During the reign of King Ahaz, the, the Valley of Himnon was a place used for sacrifice to the god Moloch. And it wasn't just the pagans who sacrificed to Moloch, it was the Jews as well. In fact, Jews would sacrifice their own children in the Valley of Himnon to appease this god, Moloch. Josiah became the king of Judah when he was eight years old. And when he was 20, he began to reform the nation of Israel. And when he was 26, they were restoring the temple and he found a copy of the Torah. It had long been forgotten by the people. But when he read it, he ramped up all the reforms he had started. He took all the altars to Moloch and other gods and destroyed them in the valley of Himnon, and he cursed it. 
From then on, the valley was known as a place of fire and destruction and death. So this valley, just outside of the walls of Jerusalem, has a deep and dark history in the Jewish mind. The prophet Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of King Josiah, used this picture of the Valley of Himnon as a prophetic picture of the coming doom of Israel. And if I can loosely paraphrase Jeremiah's message, it was something like this. If the people continue to refuse to care for the poor and the oppressed, and if they can continue to insist on worshiping other gods, the consequence of their action would be that they would be invaded and the city of Jerusalem would end up like the Valley of Himnon. And guess what? That is exactly what happened. Jerusalem was invaded. The temple and the city were destroyed and the people were taken into exile. Himnon was a warning of the coming destruction. In Greek, the name for the Valley of Himnon is Gehenna. At the time of Jesus, it was a smoldering trash heap. Fires burned day and night. It was consumed with maggots and worms. The word Gehenna is usually translated as hell in our English Bibles. It shows up 12 times in the New Testament, and 11 of those were out of the mouth of Jesus himself. When people say that Jesus spoke of hell, he used the word Gehenna when he spoke of hell. Now, what we know from history is that there was this school of Jewish thought, even before Jesus, that began to see the Valley of Himnon as a picture of the afterlife for those who were not chosen, for those that were evildoers. Now, interestingly, this is not found in our Bibles, but you can read it in the Apocrypha, especially in the book of Enoch. This view was becoming pretty prominent at the time of Jesus. And the, the modern infernalist view of hell holds to that view. People would say that, yes, Gehenna is a, is a dump outside of the city that burns day and night, but it's actually a metaphor for hell. It's a picture of what hell is going to be like. Now, that's what most of us grew up on. But there's another important school of thought that isn't talked about so much, and we dare not miss, miss it, because I, I think this is better supported by the Bible. This school of thought holds that Jesus was speaking like the prophet Jeremiah in those 11 instances where he uses the word Gehenna. He was prophesying the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem that actually did come to pass in 70 AD. I started studying this a few years ago, and my first filter said, no, that can't be right. But the more I studied, I became like, man, I, I hope this is right, because I like this, this rings true. And, and the more that I've studied, I, I've come to believe that it is right. 
To Jeremiah, Gehenna was a warning of the coming destruction of the city and captivity of the people. Jesus seems to be giving the same warning that the consequence of their continued rejection of God would bring destruction to their city and to their most precious temple. It certainly seems to make more sense of the statement that Jesus made in Matthew 24 when he said, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. If he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it makes perfect sense. If he's talking about the end of the world, then that statement becomes problematic. I won't drag us into all the long theological discourse with all the passages that I, but to speak to this idea. But I, but I do think that when Jesus spoke of judgment and hell, he was actually talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that happened just 30 years later. Another thing that I really struggled with in the infernalist theory was the longevity of the punishment. Eternity? Isn't that a little bit extreme? Especially if you buy into the reform position that people are chosen by God in terms of who's in and who's out. And if you're not one of the elect, you are tortured for all eternity. For what? Because you weren't chosen? Does that sound anything like a God whose love endures forever? Read Psalms 136. Over and over and over, the psalmist just repeats that line. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Or read Romans 8, where it says that not even the powers of hell can separate you from the love of God. So you're tortured forever because you weren't chosen or because you didn't pray the prayer? The Greek word that we usually translate as eternal in these passages is the word ionios. It's a Greek word. It's spelled, just in case you want to Google it, it's spelled A-I-O-N-I-O-S, ionios. And it has a few different meanings. It it can be interpreted as eternal, but it can also be interpreted as speaking of a different age, an age that is to come. N.T. Wright says the word isn't about how long, it's about when. So it can be very reasonably interpreted that in the age to come, which makes a lot more sense in light of God's love enduring forever. It can also actually mean for an age or for a period of time. It's how the annihilationist would see it, that hell is for a time and then there's an end you cease to exist. In my opinion, interpreting the word as eternal is probably the least likely interpretation. There's a verse in Revelation chapter 21 that I think is really important in all of this. While I think that much of Revelation is metaphoric, 
it is there's this beautiful picture of what the new age might look like. And in verse 5, God makes this statement, all who are thirsty must come and drink from the water of life. Now, does all mean just the ones who are saved? Or is it an invitation for all who are thirsty? I would imagine the lake of fire would make one rather thirsty, and it seems like the invitation is to all who are thirsty. Then later in this picture of the New Age, it speaks of the city, and the city has 12 massive gates, gates that are never shut, day or night. You usually don't need gates to keep people in paradise. You have gates to keep people out. But it seems that the gates are never closed because everybody is welcome to come and drink from the water of life. At times in the New Testament, this word Ionius is teamed up with the word Colossus, which is usually translated as punishment. If you want to look up Colossus, it's spelled K-O-L-A-S-I-S. And like I say, it's usually translated as punishment. So the two words together are translated as eternal punishment. Now, it's not incorrect to translate this word as punishment but it's not punitive punishment. It's about restorative punishment. It's about punishment to bring a positive result. Some Greek dictionaries even say that it's a term that's borrowed from horticulture that means to prune or to trim. Now, this is often explained away by the use of Ionius before it, saying that it can't be restorative because then it can't be eternal. But if you interpret the word Ionius as we did just a minute ago, eternal punishment becomes restorative punishment in the next age, or even a time of pruning and trimming in the next age, or a refining fire in the next age. Now, when you put all that with quite a few other passages in the Bible, that translation seems to make so much more sense. So let me just show you a couple. There's this passage in Malachi 3. It says this, Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to do it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, leaving them like gold and silver, so they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Or check out this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But on the judgment day, 
Fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive award. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. There is just so much evidence in the Bible that the fire that is often spoken of is a fire that is meant to purify and refine and restore, not to punish. And if it's meant to purify and restore, it cannot be eternal. Okay, one last thing I want to talk about when it comes to why I can't agree with the modern infernalist view. And it's that it's a very exclusive message that seems out of place with a God who I believe is radically inclusive. If you read the story of Jesus, you see nothing but inclusivity. The rich, the poor, women, lepers, those who are marginalized, those who are broken, everybody is welcome. So let me take you to a couple passages of Scripture. Philippians says that there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Does that mean every knee and every tongue or just some? I've heard some people make the argument that everybody will bow down, but for some it'll be too late. Really? What, what happened to his love endures forever? Was there a cutoff time on the prodigal son? I mean, if he had waited another day or a week or a month, would it have been too late? I don't think so. And what do you do with the stories like the one of the lost sheep where the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one that is lost? Did the shepherd give the sheep a chance to stay lost? Or, or did he throw him on his shoulders and take him back to the fold? 1 John 2, 2 says that he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So if Jesus came to redeem the sins of the whole world, then it seems like you'd have to say his mission was a failure if even one person perished or ended up in hell. Personally, I find this kind of exclusivity in the traditional infernalist theory inconsistent with the character of God. So if all that is what I don't believe, what do I believe? And the truth is, I'm less confident with what I do believe than what I don't believe. I'm not comfortable throwing the whole concept out. When you really get into the weeds of all the scripture that deals with the subject, it can be very confusing. 
I do believe, though, that our, our modern evangelical view is really messed up. And I certainly lean toward the ultimate redemption of all of humanity. Like I said in the beginning, I do believe in hell. I'm just not sure anybody's there. Okay, I guess that gives us enough to think about for another day. Like always, drop me questions if you have them. You can do it privately or publicly on my podcast Facebook page. Um, If you're not following me there, just search for Deeply Spiritual but Rather Uncertain and, and click the follow button. Also, if you can help support the podcast financially, go to patreon.com forward slash Skip Collins. Any help would be greatly appreciated. If this helps you and you can help out, then please do. I know we're almost to Christmas time and I know that people are busy, but I'm going to keep up with the podcast, um, at least through the new year anyway, before I take a short break to regroup. So if you get busy, that's okay. Just catch up early in the year. So until next time, 2021 is just around the corner. Stay safe. Shalom.